Thank you, Mike. There is something very special about calling our attention each Sunday to the needs of the world that God has placed us in. Revelation chapter 2 is where we are this morning. We are on a short series through the letters of John, actually from Jesus to the churches. We will not go all the way through the book of Revelation, but only these seven letters. And this morning we are in verses 8 through 11, the message to Smyrna, the persecuted church. Let's rise and give a respect and honor to the word of God. And to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Let's pause and ask the Lord to speak to your heart this morning. Would you do that in the quietness of your heart right now? You've already heard his word. You are about to hear it taught. Would you just pause and make sure that your heart is clear, able to hear his voice? Lord, it is with warm anticipation that we bow our souls and our hearts before your word. We need it. We need you to teach us and encourage us and correct us where need be. We pray that you would do that in this, these moments because of your reputation that exists in us, Lord because of the high calling you've given us in the world and because this level of submission to you is worthy of you. And we love you, Lord, inviting you to speak in your precious and holy and exalted name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to ask you a question as we get going. Have you ever done the right thing and suffered for it? I mean, have you stood up for God's truth at work or in your family, said or done the right thing the right way and still suffered for it? You may have paid dearly. You may have lost friends. You may even have lost a job over it. 
When trouble strikes, and especially trouble brought on because we've done the right thing, what do you do? Where do you go? What do you think? We may be think, tempted to think something that isn't true, that God, who is sovereign and who does rule his world, maybe has allowed something unfair to touch our lives. That is untrue. But it is what our emotions tell us sometimes. At the very least, even, even the best we can do sometimes may be a bewildered feeling about what in the world is happening. If that describes anything you've ever felt, Jesus has something to say to you this morning. He speaks to the recipients of the church and he says, he says to a church who is suffering under the heavy hand of persecution because they have a fellow group of people who are Jewish, but Jesus says they're only Jewish in name only. They're actually a synagogue of Satan. And we'll unpack that more in just a moment. But this church is suffering under their hand. And Jesus speaks encouragement to them, and he only speaks encouragement. This is one of the, of the seven churches. There are two that Jesus does not rebuke, and this is one of them. Philadelphia is the other. Not the Philadelphia you know, but the one over in the Middle East. So he, he also identifies himself to the church of Smyrna. He says these, this is very, very important. In fact, the way Jesus identifies himself is significant to every one of these churches. He says... These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm the all-encompassing one. I am the first and the last. Time is in my hands. Life, are you listening? Life and every detail of life is guided by the hand of Jesus Christ who stands, who sits securely at the throne, the right hand of God on the throne of the universe. Sovereignty is his. Power is his. Authority is his. Nothing, listen, nothing surprises the throne room of heaven. Can you get that and put it into your heart? Because tomorrow you may experience something that causes you to have these, these emotions we've talked about. He is the first and the last. <laughs> He's the all-encompassing one. He also says, who was dead and came back to life. He's the victorious one. We saw that last week when we talked about his death and resurrection. Uh, in fact, we kind of have Easter every Sunday, don't we? Because every, every worship day is the first day of the week. Why does the church worship on the first day, not the seventh day? Because the, the, Drew, the Jews pushed them out. And we couldn't, the church in Jerusalem in, in, in antiquity could no longer worship with their uh, parents, if you were, the Jews. And so they chose the first day of the week because the first day is when Jesus rose from the dead. So we kind of have Easter every Sunday, don't we? <laughs> He's the victorious one. He's risen from the dead. Listen, you know this, but let me remind you. His death was not a, a, an unfortunate happenstance. It, things just didn't go badly for him and he got murdered. 
He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to take it up again. That's the Jesus that we know. And that's the Jesus who is speaking to this church and reminding them that he is all-encompassing and he is victorious because he's the first and the last and he was dead and came to life again. And so to this church who is suffering, he says to them, I suffered, you will suffer. I am victorious because I rose from the dead and even, and you're going to see this a little more as we get further into the passage, even if your suffering leads to your death, not the end. Now, we need to know that. We, you say, well, theologically, I know you know that. But in the midst of suffering, that's when you need to hear it. And that's why he says it to this church. In, interestingly and significantly, the city of Smyrna experienced a resurrection. It was in uh, 1000 B.C., about the same time that David was ruling over Israel, that Smyrna was founded. And in 600 B.C., Aletes of Lydia destroyed the city. But it wasn't until the Alexander the Great had died and his empire was divided in, by, by his four generals, that uh, is about 290 B.C., that the city experienced a resurrection, as it were. It became a city again with an assembly and magistrates, and it entered into an era, an era of vitality and prosperity. And so, in a sense, Smyrna rose from the dead as a city. And Jesus reveals himself not only to this church, but this church in this city with these terms. I was dead, but am back to life. And so this, this rings a bell with them. It means something to them. And so he reveals his omniscience to this church. He says, I know your works. He says that to every church. But what does it mean that he knows? He knows. You and I know things because we experience them and we have senses and we, we go about learning. God doesn't ever learn. God just knows. This is a Greek word that means intuitive knowledge. If you're God, you are omniscient. If you're God, you just know. This is a characteristic of God that brings the true child of God much comfort. Sometimes in the deepest darkness of your human experience, you may drop to your knees and with tearful words simply say, Lord, you know what this is. You know how this feels. You know. And that is a great comfort to us. God knows our tribulation. He sees the specific trouble of this church. He sees the specific trouble in your life. You don't go to God in prayer and inform him. <laughs> he just knows. He sees it. He sees the anguish of soul. He sees the persecution. He sees the emotional weight of life. He, he feels, he knows the crush of a heart that gives rise to a tsunami of emotion. He knows the tribulation. Why? Well, remember our Christmas messages? He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's always there. He always knows. And his message to us is the same as his message to them. I know your works. I know your tribulation. What kind of tribulation were they going through? Well, the next thing he says kind of clues us. Your poverty. And don't you love the parenthesis? But you are rich. 
Here is a contrast. The Lord of the church is giving, yes, you are poor. This is the way you see yourselves. This is the way society sees you. And by the way, the Greek term here means physical indigence. It means a begging poverty. It means an extreme deprivation. And yet Jesus says, you're rich. You're rich. You ever get discouraged about being a small church? About money being an issue sometimes? You know what? This message is for you if you feel that way. Because Jesus says there's a richness that the world can't see. There is a wealth that people don't connect. And Jesus says this church's Christianity cost them something. It cost them their financial welfare. Why? Because the rulers of the synagogue, remember there's an issue here that there's, there's people who say they're Jews but aren't, and Jesus, the, the Lord of the church, the one who sees things as they are, he says they're a synagogue of Satan. There's an issue here, and the rulers of the synagogue could often put pressure on, the, on others in society to control the selling and the transactions of undesirable people which Christians were. And in this societal context, the Lord Jesus says, yeah, they see you as poor. They see the outward person that you are. But I'm looking at your heart. I'm looking at the character of your soul, and you are rich. And he uses a term in the original language that speaks of abounding riches. Oh, for a divine commentary on our lives like that. The world sees you as poor, but Jesus sees you as rich. The world sees you as destitute, but he says there's a wealth that I've given you that nobody can figure out except those who have it. They possessed the true wealth of Jesus Christ because he ruled their lives completely. Remember the Ephesus church, the ones who were going about the duty of the church without a heart for Jesus? Well, here's a church with a heart for Jesus. He is the central focus of their lives, and it's costing them. But they're persevering amid persecution. They're, they're ostracized by those who claim to have religion. They're struggling against the wind of societal pressure. But they are remaining faithful to Jesus. <laughs> the significant part of their trying circumstances are these Jews. He says, listen, look, look at the wording here. The Lord Jesus doesn't, doesn't make mistakes in the way he says something either. He says, I know the blasphemy, that word... Uh, we talked a few weeks ago about a translation or a transliteration. This is blasphemos in the Greek. It means to speak evil of holy things. And so without a better word in our language, we simply bring that word from Greek over into our language and call it blasphemy. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. To these believers, Jesus says, don't be fooled by what they say. I know exactly who they are and what they're doing. They say they follow God, but in reality they are blaspheming God because they are not receiving the Messiah from God. They're false followers. And brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter how tender your heart is toward the lost, and it does need to be tender toward the lost. Everybody without Jesus Christ is headed toward a Christless eternity. 
God's not just going to wink at sin, and God is not winking. He's not going to let a rejection of his way to, to bring salvation to the earth be, be shunned and thought lightly of. And I want to say to you that the lost people you know around you are headed for a Christless eternity, and God has put them around you so that you can tell them how to be saved. Jesus exhorts the church, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. It's funny sometimes, the original language is a lot stronger than it comes out in our translations. There, the Greek grammar here could also be translated a little more precisely as stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. Stop being afraid of those things which you are about to suffer. Do you notice Jesus doesn't say, oh, you're not going to suffer? I'm going to keep it from you. I want your life to be wonderful and full of joy and wealth and health. Those are not the words of Jesus. So when you hear that on TV, you know that's not Jesus' words. No, Jesus says, you are about to suffer. You suffer when you stand up for righteousness in the world. There is a suffering coming, but there's a plan for it as well. And Jesus says, know that it's coming, but don't be afraid. In fact, stop being afraid, because the one who was dead and came back to life has gone before you. He's the victorious one. He's the one calling the church to fix our attention upon himself. Who is he? The author and the finisher of our faith. He's the preeminent one, the first and the last. He's the sovereign controller of all things, and it is this one who says... We used to have a professor in Bible college, and, when, and you'd be writing your notes on And finally, if he really wanted your attention, he'd say, he'd peck on the chalkboard. We had chalkboards in those days. He'd peck on it. He'd say, look up here. Look up here. And, and when the 60 or 70 of us in the class would finally get our attention fixed on him, then he'd say something incredibly profound. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look up here. You've got all this stuff going on in your life. But you need to fix your eyes on who I am. Stop living in fear of what you're about to, su to suffer. He suffered at the hands of evil men. Why would we think that we'd be any, have it any easier? I love the hymn writer, the way he put it. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed. For I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee. Help thee and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. We can face suffering. We can do it with the truth of what we've learned from Jesus. You have this in your notes on page two, I think. But when he says, when he reveals himself to this church as the first and the last, we can conclude from that that there's not going to be any suffering that's outside of his control. And secondly, because he was dead, we can conclude that no suffering is greater than what he himself suffered in our behalf. Along with that point, you can expect to be treated like he was treated if you're his follower. I know that blesses you and makes you want to go to the mission field. <laughs> but here's the victory. He came back to life. And you can expect to be victorious over suffering as well. 
That's the Jesus Christ that is talking to this church. He's exalted. He's ruling. He's controlling. He's never out of control. He's never shocked or surprised. He's always aware. He always cares. He's always moving amid the churches, intimately acquainted with all our ways, holding us in his hand, never discouraged about what we're going through, never weary of us coming to him. Some of us needed to hear that. He's never tired of dealing with us, and he's always strengthening us and confronting what we need to have confronted. Why does he do that? Because he's who he is. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our brother. He's our Father. And he says to us, stop being fearful. I'm in control, even when everything around you looks out of control. You know, the best picture you have of this in the scriptures is that when those disciples are in the boat and they've, they've, they've just fed all these people and they get in the boat and Jesus says, go ahead of me, I'll catch up. And, and, and he, he lets them get in this horrible storm and you see these guys, these, these seasoned sailors trying to s- struggle against this storm and then they see this person walking on top of the water and our Bibles really tone this down. The original language is so powerful here. If a movie was made of it, you'd have Jesus with a British accent saying, Do not be fearful. It is I. Why does he always have a British accent? I mean, what's wrong with the American accent? Seriously. Okay, but it's not the way it happened. There's this howl of the wind. There's the crashing of the waves. These guys think they're dying. And here comes this guy walking on the water. And you know what he says? Stop being afraid. I am. They knew who it was when he said that. And that's the message that God says to you when you're suffering. When you're dealing with something because it came upon you because you stood up for the truth. You are God's person in the world and you, you stood there and you made a, a stand for Christ and you suffered for it and God says to you in Jesus, he says, I am. I'm with you. The storm matters not to him. He goes further. He says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Do you, do you know that when you suffer evil, somebody's happy about that? Don't get me wrong here. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at the same time. But the scripture attributes the evil ultimately to him. Okay? And so when something happens, it is a diabolical plan to derail you. I'm not going to ask you how many times you get derailed. (laughs) I do too. We all do. That's why Jesus gives us these words. The fact, and listen, the fact that he reveals himself to the church, that they're going to suffer, that Satan is going to do something, is suggestive that he's allowing it to happen. Did you know the enemy is on a leash? He doesn't have free reign. In fact, the only time that he or his minions can touch you is when God gives him the, the permission to do so. And, and, and you've got to hear this that you may be tested. There is a divine purpose in everything God allows that is evil. Well, why doesn't he just keep me from evil? Well, I'd like to know that too. And if you figure it out, you tell me. But I do know that God is a God who causes good to come out of evil. And remember last Sunday when we talked about him being our our Kagos and he slew the enemy with his own weapon? 
that weapon continues after we are saved and that weapon can can be our suffering and Jesus is God and he takes the suffering and causes good to come out of it he causes us to be more conformed to the image of Jesus because of the activity of evil against us you figure that out I can't that's a mystery that's a divine mystery only God can do that but he says you will be tested and now listen, the presence of a test is suggestive of someone doing the testing, don't you think? And what is a test? It is a, it is a circumstance, it is an experience whereby you, your heart is scrutinized, you are examined, you are tried, you are proven. The same Jesus who redeemed your heart wants to establish your heart and grow it and conform it to the image of Jesus and the Jesus who loves you and gave himself for you and is working in your soul and your heart has the authority, has the rights of examination. And so you just need to understand that. And look what else he says, and you will have tribulation ten days. Why does he say that? Well, I don't know. We do have some picture language in the book of Revelation, but here's what I can see. First of all, it's a definite time period. And it's a brief time period. And there's an end in sight, and Jesus himself has set the limit. And he says, be faithful unto death. Jesus suggests here by these words that for some, there will be no relief on this side of heaven. Jesus gives his precious saints the realistic view of this world's hostility and the expectations that they should have. And clearly implied here is the impending death of some of the Christians in Smyrna. There was a man named Polycarp. He was bishop of Smyrna. He was actually a student of John's. One of his last pupils... Polycarp was born in 69 A.D., and, it, and he was about 26 when John wrote this book. He sat at the feet of the Apostle John. Polycarp was martyred in Rome only 60 years from the writing of this letter. Here's the way it went down. He was arrested, and he was asked to say, Caesar is Lord, but he refused. He was brought to the stadium, and the proconsul urged him, saying, Swear, and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me harm. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And when the proconsul again pressed him, the old man answered, Since you are vainly urgent that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who I am, then hear me with boldness. I am a Christian. A little later, the proconsul answered, I will cause you to be consumed with fire unless you repent. But Polycarp threw back in his face and said this, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour? And, is a little, and then as a little, will it be extinguished? But are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly? Why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. And with that, the people began to gather wood, especially the Jews. 
And Polycarp was burned at the stake for his testimony and his faithful witness to Jesus. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I don't think that's a literal crown because of the text. I think life is being contrasted to death here. And there is a definite article in the Greek language that causes it to read very awkwardly in English. That's why our translators leave out the definite article. But it says literally this, I will give you the crown of the life. So there's a contrast here between, between physical death and eternal life. Paul said it like this, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. For we who are in this tent, and he talks about the, the body as being a tent, Grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. We don't want to lay this down. We don't want to die. That's what he's saying. But we do want to be further clothed. That mortality may be swallowed up by life. Do you see the contrast of the scripture here? What all Jesus is and all Jesus has promised needs to be your whole focus, your whole heart's grasp on him. And Jesus calls the church to Listen, he who has an ear, let him hear. Everyone needs to listen in order to be strengthened. He calls the church to focus. He says what the Spirit says to the churches, not what circumstances say, not what you feel, but what God the Holy Spirit says to you. We walk by faith and not by sight, and he says that we are called to walk in the truth, what the Spirit says to the churches. You know what is this, see that our, our Bibles translate that as plural? He's speaking to all the churches of every age. This message is to Smyrna, but we are to apply it. Suffering is going to be common to all God's people. Americans have had a very easy road of it for many years. And because of that, we have allowed that to become our theology. That God would never allow anything difficult to come upon us. Well, you try to convince your brothers and sisters in other countries that that's a good theology. That's not good theology. That's not biblical. The fact is, no church is unique. We share in Christ's sufferings, individually as well as corporately. And when our brothers in another country suffer, we should be grieved by that too. Look what Peter says. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. When you get in a trial, what is the first thing you think? This is strange. Why is this happening to me? Well, Peter says, don't think that way. <laughs> By the way, that's common. We all do that. Don't think of it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Jesus is constantly encouraging this church to shift their focus from this world to the next, and he promises them a reward. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What does it mean to overcome? Well, first of all, that's a present participle. Thanks for that, Dave. <clears throat> present tense. Let that one sink in. It's present. It's, it's a characteristic of what you are right now. It is speaking of an overcoming mindset that places you in a moment-by-moment -moment focus on who Jesus is. Not looking to a future event, but right now. 
And it's the kind of overcoming that would characterize a follower of Jesus as a person who follows the will of God and his agenda for your life in this world, no matter what the cost. That's what it means to be an overcomer. And if you are an overcomer, then the second death shall not hurt you. The second death, dear ones, is why we call being in Christ being saved. You're saved from that second death. The second death is a real thing that all who are outside of Christ will experience. It is hellfire. Jesus talked about that more than heaven. It is existing in a darkness, in a God-forsaken darkness, even though it's hellfire, where you, I, I don't know about you, but I can't stand being burned. That's one of the worst feelings there is. But in hell, you are constantly burned, but never consumed. You are constantly separated from God, never to have a chance again, in an unending, perpetual destruction mode. These extremists who blow themselves up, that's the first of their experience throughout eternity. It is a perpetual destruction that is never resolved. Jesus wants us to think about that for a second. And those of us who are saved, who have been saved from that kind of future, need to just stop and say, thank you, Jesus. But there might be some in the room who don't have that assurance. And if you are not in Christ, then brothers, it is a loving thing for me to do to say to you that you are headed for that. And Jesus doesn't want you to experience that. He has given his life to save you. That is why we call it being saved. We're saved from destruction. We're saved from the wrath that was rightfully ours but that Jesus took in our place. The soul who on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. That's the kind of Jesus you serve. That's the kind of Jesus who loves his church, who speaks truth so that it is because it is not his will that any should experience what we just described in the flames of hell. Would you, would you pray with me? Would you give your attention to Jesus with your head bowed and your eyes closed? Would you close out all the thoughts of the people around you? And would you consider your relationship with Jesus or your need for one? If you are uncertain of your eternal destiny, you can be certain right now by asking him to be your Lord and Savior. He has suffered in your place. He has borne your sins on Calvary's cross. All you need to do is recognize that his work, his sacrifice, ended God's wrath against you. And that it was for you 
that he gave himself. Cry out to him. Lord, save me. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be the one that I live with forever. I want to be saved. If you've suffered for the name of Jesus, you need to look to him alone. How do you know if you've suffered for Christ? Well, are you receiving trouble from evil people or the evil one? Trouble from the devil means trouble for the devil. He senses that you are a threat. Be encouraged. Look at Jesus. He will strengthen you. He will be everything you need. He will cause you to walk in his ways and remember his word so that you stand. To those who are shirking their relationship with Jesus, I have something to say to you as well. How can you not stand up for his name in this evil world? He has preceded you. He has provided all you need for life and godliness. He has authored true faith in you. He will finish true faith in you. May I ask you, where is your courage? Has it been overshadowed by the fear of man? By the love of something less than him or his approval? You need to repent of that this morning and return to him. For all of us, the double-edged sword of his word is going to be that by which we are judged. There is a day coming when we each will individually stand before him and give an account of our lives in this life. And his word will be that, which, that standard by which we are evaluated. Even now, his watchful eyes are peering into the depths of our hearts and seeing us as we are. Would you cry out to him as he is, very God of very God, the compassionate Savior, who is alive right now, present in this room, and calls us to submission. We give you thanks, Lord, for your word, for the power that is ours in you when our hearts are set free from the stuff that keeps us from giving ourselves completely to you. We are thankful for you and your incredible and deep love for us. We pray that we would be the kind of men and women that you've called us to be and young people that you've called us to be in this world. For your name, O oh Lord Jesus, and, be, and for your reputation and for our well-being as well. Amen.